Pastor Mike Favares with Focal Point Ministries. I trust that the following recorded sermon will be a benefit and a challenge to your Christian walk. For more information about Focal Point Ministries, log on to our website at focalpointministries.org, focalpointministries.org, or call us toll-free at 888-320-5885. Well, it is good to be back, especially at a particular time in our church. When there's so many great things going on. I mean, this is a critical time in the history of our church. We are at the uh, precipice, the front door of so many things that uh, are ambitious. They're big. It is probably unprecedented the kinds of things that God has set us to do here as a church. And so at a time like that, I think there could be few things better for us than to stop and, to, and just ask ourselves, why are we doing all this? What is the purpose? What is the reason we need to make sure that we understand it. Why would we want to start a training center for deepening the knowledge and, and, and aptitude of church leaders? Why would we want to plant more churches? Why would we invest so much in our facilities? All those kinds of things, all the way down to the programming as we start in the fall here. Why do we do this? Why are our kids going to this program? Why do we have these studies? What are the small groups all about? If you want to know what the church is supposed to be all about, I mean, there's no better place to go to than the book of Acts. It, it is where God starts this thing called the church and helps us see what the direction is supposed to be. We need to really understand it and not just sit back and say, well, you know, here are the programs. I like this one. I don't like that one. And church is doing this. I guess that's okay. Maybe I'll give some money to that. We need to think about what is the purpose? What is the reason? Why do we gather? Why do we have these things going on? Why are we here? Why aren't we doing something else? That needs to be crystal clear in our mind. We need to be not only clear about it, we need to be certain about it. And that, by the way, is not a very popular thing to be today. You're not supposed to be certain. All moderns say, you know, the only thing you can be certain about is that you can't be certain. I mean, that, they, they, they love to be certain about uncertainty, but you can't be certain because then you start acting like you got answers. And you start acting like you're dogmatic and you know things. And, you know, that's just not a cool thing today. You're supposed to act like you don't know things. But in reality, we're supposed to know some things. And the Bible's super clear about what God says we should know. And he says you need to be assured of this. You need to be confident in this. You need to be absolutely just completely resting your mind in a sense that you know this is exactly what God would have us do, what God would have us know, what God would have us feel, how God would have us proceed. Just, man, we are in desperate need of that kind of of certainty. So I talk about the book of Acts. I talk about the critical time in our church. We're starting this verse-by-verse study. You found there in the bulletin already, not just your worksheet, but that background set of data on the the book of Acts. We're going to move through this. I don't know how long the first series in the first chapter is six weeks we've mapped out for that. All of this is, I think, a good time for us not only to add a few books to our library and kind of dig in here at the beginning of this series in terms of our expectation and studying this part of our Bible, but it's a good time for us to reassess. Now, if you know anything about the book of Acts, and certainly if you know nothing, you could read that background sheet that I provided and and just get a basic overview. You understand, I hope, that this is part two of a a two-part Work. In other words, this is volume two of what Luke had started in the Gospel of Luke. It's one of the reasons, though we spent so long in the Gospel of Luke, I thought if I'm ever going to teach this church through the Acts of the Apostles, now's the time because we've just been in all of these great sections of Luke's writings about what Jesus did, and now we might as well do volume two, which is what the church does. And so we need to remind ourselves that in the very first verse of Acts, he's pointing back to the fact that he's written another book, that we have in our Bibles called the Gospel of Luke. And I'd like you to turn there. Even before we read the first few verses of Acts, I want to get positioned here as to what Luke says he's doing and why he's doing it. It's good for us to know as we get into a book that's going to help us understand who we are and what we're supposed to do. So let's go to Luke chapter 1 and look at the first couple of verses here and see what Luke says about what the church is supposed to understand from his volume 1, the Gospel. Take a look at this. Are you with me on this? Luke chapter 1, verse number 1 says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, verse 2, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, 
most excellent Theophilus, and we'll see in chapter 1 of Acts 1, he writes this to the same guy, Theophilus. We don't know much about Theophilus historically, other than what the compound word of his name means, Theos, Theo. Theos means God. Phileo means to love, right? It means loved by God is what this name means, a Theophilus. And then he says, I'm writing to you, most excellent Theophilus. He may have been the benefactor who underwrote the project. We're not sure. Verse 4, here's the purpose clause now, that you may have, oh, there's the ugly word of modernity, they don't like it, may have certainty. Certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. So I need you to know for sure, in an orderly, well-researched account, this is what Jesus did. That's the beginning of the gospel, and we spent some time, a few weeks at least, studying the gospel of Luke. Now we're going to start volume 2. Acts chapter 1, verse number 1. We're going to read the first three verses. We're going to understand a little bit of how this book starts. And I think you're going to find it is a perfect time in the life of our church to be studying this book. So look at it with me. Acts chapter 1, verse number 1. Let's understand why volume 2 is here. Acts 1, 1. In the first book, he's looking back now to the very book that we just referenced. O Theophilus, there he is again. I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up. Now, this is an interesting thing because it seems self-contradictory. Think about it now. What he began to do. Well, that infers that he's continuing to do, but then you just said in verse 2, beginning of verse 2, he was taken up. Well, you're right, he was taken up, but he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. So he's got a set of guys here, and you know there were 12 of them initially, and he set this team up. He gave them commands with the authority of heaven, as though we need that because he has enough credentials on his own. But the Holy Spirit directed him, giving those commands to those 12. And those commands, by the way, at the end of the earthly ministry of Christ, he said, now go and teach them to observe all that I command you. Make disciples of all the nations, even to the other side of the planet where we are here today, and teach them to observe everything that I commanded. So I gave you these commands. I want you to carry them on. But he's gone. Well, get back to that first word in verse 1. I've dealt with all that Jesus began to do. Well, what's he doing now? Well, according to the rest of the Bible, he's seated at the right hand of God. Maybe even got, you know, the recliner out and and his feet up. He's not doing anything, it looks like. I mean, we know he's interceding for us and other things, but he's not doing the work on the planet the way he was when he was here. Oh, I understand that. But there's work that's continuing. Certainly, it's implied there. He's doing more, but he's not doing it directly on this earth. He's not incarnate here walking around on earth. He's incarnate at the right hand of God, wherever that is. But... The work continues, and he is credited with doing that work, and it's working through the things that he commanded and the things that the now apostles are doing and teaching, and speaking of credentials, verse 3, well, he has all authority to give all of this because he presented himself alive after his sufferings. He was executed by professional executioners, the Romans, by many proofs. He made it clear he was alive even though he had died. Many proofs, like he showed up, he talked to them. They rattled the three bones in his inner ear of the disciples. He could actually hear him with his tongue and his vocal cords making sounds. And then he even said, listen, give me a fish to eat. I'll prove it to you. I'm not a ghost. I can eat. He's physically alive with teeth, right? He's got taste buds. He's got an esophagus. He's got a stomach. And then he said, if you really doubt it, Thomas, here, touch, reach out, see the scars of my hands and my feet, touch my side where the spear went. He presented all kinds of proof that he was alive. By many proofs, he presented himself alive after his sufferings, after his crucifixion, by many proofs, appearing to them, not just one day, not just the day of his resurrection, not just the the week after his resurrection. No, he appeared to them during 40 days and speaking to them about the kingdom of God. Now, we're about to read in chapter 2 about what God does with these people at the Feast of Pentecost, where a lot of people had come to Jerusalem. Pentecost, think about that. A pentagram, right? Five. Pentecost is the 50th day from the Passover. And Jesus, of course, was crucified on the Passover. And so we had 50 days between the crucifixion and what's about to happen in chapter 2. Well, for 40 of those days, he's there appearing to the disciples, appearing to the apostles, appearing, it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. At one time, even, he appeared to 500 people at once, like a group that's big, a crowd. So he's making lots of proofs that he's alive. So we have the resurrected, bodily resurrected, physically resurrected one 
who are, we are reminded began work that in, by implication is continuing through the apostles with all the things he commanded. And that's the gist at the beginning of this book. And it has so many implications for us today as we sit here on the precipice of a lot of things that God wants to do through us and in us as a church, let's get our focus super clear and let's not just be clear about it, let's be certain about it because nothing else I can say about this chapter is really gonna go very far if you are not certain. You need to be assured. As unpopular as that may be in the modern era, be assured of Christ, be assured of his apostles and be assured that he's still working and that's implied right there in verse one. Look at it again. Let's get our first point this morning. Verse number one. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus, underline it, highlight it, began to do and teach, which of course I've just explained, it's still continuing. Did Jesus make that promise elsewhere? Of course he did. He said, I am going to start here. I'm quoting now Matthew 16. I'm going to start to build my church and I will continue to build my church. I'm going to press the gates of hell back. We're going to expand this thing. He told stories like parables about the mustard seed. You don't put a seed in the ground. The kingdom of God is going to grow and grow and grow and grow. I'm going to grow this thing. And then he left his disciples, you might remember. At the end of of Luke 24, in Matthew 28, And as he left them, he said, listen, go and make disciples, not just here, make disciples of all the nations. You baptize them, that external sign of conversion. Then you teach them to observe all that I commanded. And then he added a verse where you and I can find ourselves even 20 centuries later. He said, and I am with you always, even to the end of the gospels. No, even to the end of the book of Acts. No, even to the end of the epistles. I'm with you always, even to the end of the the age. I love finding passages, as I often tell you, where there's no need for any interpretation. You know you're in that verse. Think about it. I'm right there. Because I know this, the age has not ended, and I'm a disciple of Christ, and I know this, that he's going to continue to be with his church, doing his work in reaching people in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, even to the ends of the earth, making disciples of all the nations. And here we are in the 21st century, on the other side of the planet from where he said these words and we're still doing what he's asked us to do which is what the first chapter is all about and we're going to get into it heavy duty next week but here's what I want to start with Christ is continuing his work if you're not sure of that then what are we doing if I'm not sure that Christ is in what's happening at this church right now then I want to go do something else for sure I want to do something else but I'm confident I'm confident because that's what he said Number one on your outline, if you're taking notes, jot this down. We need to be assured of Christ's ongoing work. There's a word to highlight, ongoing work. Christ continues to build his church, and he's not done yet. He continues to build it. And when we get a video up on the screen that talks about someone's testimony, and they come to Compass, and they hear the gospel, and they get their lives changed, guess what? That is his work that he continues to do. And you can stand back and say, I'm involved in something far bigger than joining a club in South Orange County and seeing some cool things happen there. You're a part of the divine, heavenly work of building the church, of expanding the kingdom, of batting back the gates of hell, and as John put it, snatching people from being children of the devil. That's how John puts it in 1 John. And making them children of God. That's an amazing work that continues on even to this day. And I'm saying this. That's the organization I want to be a part of. I want to be part of an organization that is a God thing and God continues to promise to be a part of it even to this day. If that didn't get you excited, I mean, that should get you excited. We're a part of something bigger than ourselves. I get to look at a passage with me that always gets me excited about this concept. Colossians chapter one. Near the end of Colossians chapter one, Paul says something that is helpful because it conflates for us, not in a bad way, but in a good way. It conjoins for us two things that I think are helpful. And I, I talk about this in thinking about your small groups and thinking about what's coming in the future. And that is when we get fired up about the first chapter of Acts, I'm afraid that what happens as soon as we encounter opposition or difficulty in doing what we're told to do in this quote unquote royal task, God's task for us, the great commission, that we'll start to shrink back. And what we need to learn from a passage like this in Colossians chapter one is that that's part of what God says is going to happen. It's going to be a difficult struggle It's not going to be easy. It's going to be hard. But that's the hard, good work. That's why Paul says at the end of his life, he, in his generation, fought the good fight of faith. We have a task. We're like good soldiers of Christ, suffering hardship 
wanting to please the one who enlisted us. All of those things help me realize this. I'm not out there doing easy stuff because Christ said to do it and I'll do it as long as it's easy. I'm out there doing hard stuff. I'm advancing the kingdom. I'm batting back the gates of hell. Not like some religions that really physically take up arms to advance their their philosophy. I'm talking about what Paul said, taking up weapons in the right hand and the left. Not weapons of the world, not weapons of the warfare of this world, but I'm tearing down every argument that raises itself up against the knowledge of God. I'm fighting ideas and false ideas about God. I'm bringing people to understand rightly who Christ is. I'm ongoing in that work, but it's going to be hard. And a matter of fact, it's going to be pushed back and it's going to be opposed even by Satan himself. And if Jesus didn't make that clear in Matthew 16 by saying the growth of the church will be, it is equal to the batting back of the gates of hell. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. I know this. I'm at war with something that's going to push back hard. It's a struggle. It's good work, but it's a struggle. Drop down to verse 24. Colossians chapter 1, verse 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh, in my body, in this life, in this era, in this age, as I'm sitting here in my humanity, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. Now, what in the world is that all about? How can Christ be lacking in anything that he did? I thought he did everything, did it right, did it completely, did it fully. If you want to talk about the sufferings of Christ, I think, well, of course, right? That's what he said on the cross. He suffered all day long, and then he said on the cross, it is finished. I'm thinking, I thought you were done with all of your afflictions, and you did all the afflictions that were necessary. You're right. Christ suffered everything that was necessary to redeem you from the penalty of your sins. He suffered fully. He didn't lack anything in that affliction. But there was some suffering and affliction that just got started in the first century, and in 33 AD, it wasn't over yet. And what was it? It was the growth of the kingdom. It was the advancing of the church. It was batting back the gates of hell and seeing people go from children of darkness to children of light. It was the evangelism of the world. It was making disciples of all the nations. Did Christ make disciples of all the nations? No, he just started that work. Was it hard? It was hard. He had to deal with Judas. He had to deal with Thomas. He had to deal with his disciples. That was tough. He had to deal with the Sanhedrin and the government and the Romans. And that came to an end for him and he handed the baton to the next generation. And he said, I'm going to go to my father. I'm going to send the spirit. The spirit's going to empower you and you're going to do the work and it'll be your turn to take on the work and it's going to be hard work and it's going to be suffering. And Paul says, you know what? Here I am trying to win the Colossian city to Christ. And in that, I know it's hard, but I'm happy to do the work. I look at it again. Rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. What is that? That I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction. He said he'd build his church, and that sounds like a lot of work to build something. Well, he just built the very basics of it, and now he says, hey, workers, get out there and work. Does that sound like Matthew 9? He said, look at the harvest, man. There's a lot out there. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Pray to the Lord. Strong word. Beseech. Beg the Lord of the harvest to send forth workers into the harvest field. So right now, 20 centuries after that, on the other side of the planet, he's saying, I got people there. I need to see them in this thing called the church. I need to see their lives changed and transformed by the gospel. And he's saying, it's your turn to suffer and work and struggle to get that done in your generation. And Paul says, I'm excited to do it. Matter of fact, I not only see it as a struggle that I'm happy to engage in, verse 25, I feel the responsibility. It's a stewardship, verse 25, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God. You know that word, stewardship? It's, it's my task. It's my responsibility. It's like I don't own myself. I'm not responsible for my own schedule. God has given me a schedule because I'm a servant of God. And so I have a stewardship and it's, it's required of stewards that they be found faithful to do what their master, their boss says to do. And I have a stewardship. I became a servant, a minister, according to the stewardship from God that was given to me, I love this, for you which should be a great way to change everything about the perspective of God's investment in us. He's giving us things. He gave you opportunities to learn. He gave you opportunities to grow. He's given you opportunities to do all kinds of things. And you need to see that as a steward to see if you now can take that and invest that in others. It may be hard. It's a struggle, verse 24, but it's also a stewardship, verse 25, so that I can make the word of God, Paul says, fully known. A lot of people have partial knowledge about God. We need to make it fully known. And in the first century, that was really hard. It's still hard today. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his people, his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles, which was mind-blowing for those Jewish people of the first century, the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of this eternal coming kingdom, the hope of glory. 
What a great thing that Paul wants to see people in Colossae come to Christ. And he says, I am so excited to do it and willing to suffer for it, but I also see the external pressure of knowing it's my responsibility. We are in a race. And you know what? Our grandparents and parents have given us the baton, and it's our turn to reach our generation in this corner of the world for Christ. We want to think beyond the walls. That's a different message. We'll talk about the other nations. We'll talk about the other places. But right now, I'm talking about our church in South Orange County in the 21st century. We have a place that God wants us to reach, and it's our turn to reach it. It's a response. It's a baton. You are in a relay race. You just got the baton. And there are people here in our town, there are people here in our county that need Christ. And it is our responsibility, our stewardship to reach them. And to get back to that last line of the Great Commission, and I am with you always, even to the end of the age, that seems so, I don't know, emotional, metaphysical. Well, it is metaphysical in a sense, right? He is in us by the power of the Spirit. And there's a great word, power of the Spirit. He wants to do things in us. When we feel like quitting, you can say, no, don't quit. When we feel like not taking another vulnerable conversation to a coworker, I, I got rejected last time. I don't want to have that to serve another night outside of the church to invest in people and disciple them. I don't want to do that. It's hard. He is going to be with us. When we feel naturally like giving up, he wants to empower us. He wants to give us strength. That's where he goes next. Just finish this little section here. Verse 28, we proclaim him warning everyone and teaching everyone. Those are hard words, warning and teaching. There's a lot of work in that. With all wisdom, man, I need training, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. We want to see them saved. We want to see them grow. For this I toil, struggling, there's our word again, struggling with all of his energy that he powerfully works within me. I mean, I hate to alliterate all this, but there it is. Verse 24, struggle. Verse 25, stewardship. And here we have strength, the strength that God provides by saying, if I can find people on the other side of the planet, 20 centuries later that are willing to get involved in my work, I'm going to strengthen them. I'm going to have a work within them, having them move on and endure and persevere when they feel like quitting. That's the power of God working among us. You may be looking for some, I don't know, spiritual goosebump or some ecstatic experience. The work of God to empower me doesn't mean that I have some ecstatic experience. It means that I am continuing to endure and continue on in representing Christ in my generation. It's saying I'm not giving up. When I feel like I don't have the words to say, I'm going to stand up and try and say it. When I don't have the power to go, I'm going to, I'm going to stand up and try and go, and God is going to enable me. And somebody in this room clearly can testify to that. I would hope most people in the room could testify to the fact that when I was willing to step out to do God's will, God empowered me. The struggle, the stewardship, the strength of God's ongoing work. The work of Christ is not finished. What's lacking in Christ's affliction in South Orange County, I hope you recognize is something that you and I are willing to take up that responsibility, grab the baton, and get involved in the ongoing work of Christ. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do in teeth. Now it's time for us to do that. But it started with 28 chapters, with the apostles being the foundational conduit through which all this is going to get started. The catalytic work of those apostles. Verse 2, back to our passage. Acts chapter 1, verse 2. Jesus did a lot of stuff until the day when he was taken up. He did a lot. He taught a lot. After, now we're looking before he was taken up, had given commands through the Holy Spirit. These were unbreakable commands. When you talk about stuff the Holy Spirit commands, that's like going back to the tablets on Mount Sinai. This is the unbreakable absolute God-breathed truth. God has given commands, and they were the exact commands that God and, and heaven wanted earth to have through the Holy Spirit, and he gave them and entrusted them to the apostles whom he had, as though we need any more credentials here. He had chosen them. He picked them. So we have a special group of guys. Their nickname, by the way, was the Twelve. So we know there was 12. That's why in the passages that we're about to get into later in this series, they're freaking out because Judas has betrayed them and he's now gone out and killed himself and they don't, they don't know what to do. Jesus kept talking about the 12. He talked about in Matthew 19, one day in the millennial kingdom, the 12 apostles sitting on the 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes. There must be 12. And sure enough, we get to the end of the book in Revelation chapter 21. There are 12 foundational stones and on them are the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. So we know there's 12. So they're sitting there trying to figure out what do we do? We got 11 now. And we'll talk about that when we get there. 
But know that this book, the Acts of the Apostles, as it's been traditionally called from the earliest of church history, the Acts of Apostles is about those apostles giving those authoritative commands that were given by the Spirit through Christ to the apostles to get them out to us. And they become the foundational spokespersons of the kingdom. Apostle. It's a weird word. Actually, it's not even an English word. It's a transliterated Greek word. I often try and get you to understand that in the Bible, we're reading now in an English text, sometimes the Greek words of the original language of the New Testament get slid right over. It happens in Hebrew sometimes, but more often in Greek in the New Testament, we get words like baptism that come from the word baptizo that aren't translated into a different word that would make sense. They're just transliterated. Words like angel. That's really not an English word. That's a Greek word, angelos, and we just slide it over into English, and you have to say, well, what is an angel? I've got to define it. And so it is with this word apostolos. The apostolos is now just translated now into the word apostle. What does it mean? If we were to translate it, we would translate it, I guess in the most basic sense, it is someone who is sent, apostello, to send out. But it's more than that. The usage of that, even in classical Greek, is someone who brings a message from another person with an authority. You're an authorized agent, an authorized representative. It's like you have power of attorney here. You are someone who has the ability to speak on the behalf of another. That's what an apostle is. And that's the way this word is used throughout the book of Acts. It's used of the apostles and only of the apostles except for when it speaks of of Barnabas in conjunction with Paul. More on that when we get to the end of chapter 1. But the point is here, these 12 are very special people that are brokering the commands that have come through Christ, which is exactly what we see in the New Testament Gospels. And that is that Jesus was going to pick these guys and have them now represent him authoritatively with a message that was as binding as if you had had stone tablets in Moses' hands off the Mount Sinai. We need to have confidence in that message. We're going to hold up a message to our coworkers in our generation, which they don't like. And we're going to say we're certain about this message. And they're going to say, why in the world would you believe those words in those 27 books of the New Testament, let alone the 39 books of the Old Testament? Why do you believe those are God's authoritative words? And you're going to have to grapple with the fact that, well, they came through the apostles. Well, big deal. Who were they? Well, that's the very important part of what this study is going to be all about. Who were the apostles? The acts of the apostles. That sounds important. Well, it is important because they have authority that if you disobey the apostles, you're disobeying God. One of the things I want you to catch in this series, particularly at the outset of this series, if we're ever going to have confidence in God, we need to have confidence in his word through the apostles. I put it this way. Number two, you and I need to be confident in Christ's apostles. They have an authority that you and I need to respect because you're going to hold up a New Testament and you're going to read things in the New Testament. And sometimes, like a lot of moderns, you're going to say, why should I give them any credence? When Paul starts talking about homosexuality, why should I believe any of that? And then you're going to hope, like a lot of people, well, maybe if I looked at the words of Jesus and he seems to outrank Paul, well, maybe I can find nothing about homosexuality there. So maybe it'll be cool and I can just kind of hang loose with my modern copacetic culture and say, no big deal. It's great because Jesus never talked about it. Maybe I can create a whole movement. Well, it's already happened. As a matter of fact, on the worksheet, I think it's question three. I don't normally do this, but I named a group of people known as the red letter Christians. And I want you to think about that in light of Scripture and all that's taught this morning and all that you read in those passages and recognize that there are people that try to say, well, listen, as long as it's the words of Christ in red letters, which was just a convention in English Bible publishers, they said, well, let's just put the words there of Christ in red. Just let them jump off the page of you. They say, well, I like that Jesus better than all the other stuff in Romans or Galatians or First Peter. I don't like all that because it gets very detailed. It starts to meddle in my life and it starts to be very restrictive. I'm just going to stick with love your neighbors yourself and turn the other cheek. And I like those things. Well, let me, tell you, let me give you a, word, a theological word to sum up this whole movement. Are you ready? Dumb. It's just dumb. And here's why it's dumb. And I don't say that to be disrespectful. I'm just saying this. Tony Campolo, one of the great spokesmen of the Red Letter Christian Movement. It's just, Tony, it's dumb. I've heard you interviewed. I've heard you try to support this. I've heard you try to defend it. Listen, here's why it's dumb. Because all I got to do is read the red letters. And I'm not going to find the Jesus you want to find there. Am I right? You've heard Jesus talk a little bit, haven't you? And I know you picture him with teddy bears and butterflies on his shoulders and high cheekbones and squeezing all the children. It's like, oh, he's great. I want to tweet about that guy. Okay, well, all you do is read the quote-unquote red letters. And you read all kinds of things that are just crazy. Things that 
You don't even hear from the apostles in terms of the severity. Things like this. I'll tell you to fear. Don't fear the one who can come and jump you in a dark alley in North Long Beach. Don't tell me about that. Don't fear that. Let me tell you about someone who can not only kill your body, but after he's killed your body, he can cast your soul into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Now that's never going to be on the red letter docket to preach on at a red letter Christian Bible church. Why? Because I don't like that. I don't like it at all. We may not like it, but that's what Jesus taught. And Jesus said a lot of things about gender. He said a lot of things about marriage. Oh, you may not use the words homosexual or whatever it is that our culture may not like. And, and they may have seizures over the fact that they can't handle the things in the New Testament. I'm just telling you this. The red letters are as hard as the rest of the New Testament. But I am telling you this. If you read the red letters, by the way, like in John chapter 14 through 16, he makes it very clear that I'm going to send my spirit to the apostles and the apostles now are going to take my words. They're going to be guided into truth and they are going to establish that truth. And it's going to be very clear in that upper room discourse that they have all the authority that I had when it comes to speaking for heaven. And that's exactly what we see throughout the scripture. That the reason that Jesus, even when he was questioned about his authority, he said, listen, do you not understand who you're talking to? Even if you were just really dense I mean, this is a Mike Fabar's paraphrase. But even if you were really, really dense and you don't want to believe the words that I say, could you look at the works that I'm doing? You ought to believe what I say because of the works that I'm doing because they testify of the Father. In other words, there's only a God in heaven who can break the laws of nature that have been made and I'm doing them. I have people that were dead and I'm saying words and they're crawling out of a tomb after four days. I have people with eyes that are sunk back in their heads and I'm touching their eyes and they're becoming completely restored with clear corneas, seeing perfectly. I got guys with atrophied legs that were begging all their lives as paraplegics and I'm saying to them, take up your mat and walk and they got great calf muscles and they stand up, pop up and walk away. This is something you ought to be looking at my miraculous deeds and knowing I'm no regular rabbi here. If you don't believe me for the words that I say, you ought to believe me for the works that I'm doing. And then he says this, I'm going to pick 12 and I'm going to give them that authority and they're going to have authority to do things just like I did. And the works that I've done, they're going to do even more works than that. He made it very clear. And all throughout the New Testament, here's what we see. You want to know who a true apostle is? I'm quoting now 2 Corinthians 12, 12. Here's a true apostle. He does miracles and signs and mighty works. Those are words used technically throughout the New Testament to describe the breaking of natural law. I know there are little guys that game around at this and pretend to do this kind of stuff on TV or even in our neighborhood here. I recognize, but if they did the stuff in the book of Acts, they'd be on the front cover of the LA Times, the Chicago Tribune, and certainly the Orange County Register. I guarantee you. Because this is the breaking of natural law. This is something that is not something that you see every day. As a matter of fact, you only see it in three basic rashes throughout biblical history. And with the apostles, they're doing these signs. Let me give you a couple of passages to jot down if you're taking notes. If I'm going to have confidence in the apostles, I need to not differentiate and bifurcate the red letters from the black letters of the New Testament. Why? Because of this. Here's a couple of passages that may be helpful. Acts 2.22. Acts 2.20, when the apostles are preaching, Peter in this case, he says, men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man, here's the key word, attested to you with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. And he goes on to talk about what that Jesus said. You saw things that normal people cannot do. This is no normal person. He's got the authority of heaven. Now that's the deference in the apostolic preaching, to the miracle working power of Christ. Well then, Luke goes on to say that's exactly what the apostles were doing. Chapter 5, verse 12. One example of many in the book of Acts. And this is a summary statement. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. They're doing the same kind of stuff. And we get examples of that. And we're going to see those. And we're going to study those. Look at what they did. Guess what? They're having people stand up and walk. They're having dead people rise from it. That stuff happens in the book of Acts. Now, what's that all about? Well, God needed to get the message. And he clearly presented it through the apostles with the authority of heaven. It is the thing that has become attested to us as God's spokespersons. And it lays the foundation on which the entire church is built. Every generation, whether it's the third, the second, the 13th, or the 21st century, they're all looking back at what those apostles recorded as spokespersons of heaven, and they recorded the New Testament truth for us in those 27 books of the New Testament. And I'm quoting, that's a summation, by the way, of Ephesians 2.20. Ephesians 2.20 says, The church is built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets 
with Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Of course, the red letters are critical. But you know what? All those red letters, by the way, here's the irony of the circular reasoning of this movement. They're all written by the apostles, you understand. They're recorded in the Bible by the apostles. That's the point. But you know why we should listen to them? Well, one reason is historically, they were standout spokespersons because they had the ability to break natural law. Now, there's some guys like John Wimber and, and you know, Pitt Fuller and other people in the past, they've read the book of Acts and go, well, I want to do that stuff, like some petulant child. They just, well, I want to do that. Why can't I do that? Here's why you can't do it, because you're not an apostle. That's why you can't do it. You don't get to do that stuff because you're not an apostle. So we're going to learn that foundational era of the apostles. This is a transitional period. And as a pastor, a good pastor, I want to be a good pastor to you. I've got to govern our expectations as we read the book of Acts. It's one thing to see Jesus calling Lazarus out of the tomb. I don't want to see you at the cemetery trying to call people out of tombs because you saw in the book of Acts that a non-Jesus guy did the same thing. Well, the reason the non-Jesus guy did the same thing is because he is a apostolos. He's a sent one from Christ. He's an authorized authority that could prove to other people by his wonders and signs that he was a representative of heaven. That's why I can hold up my 27 books of the New Testament and say, hey, just like the 39 books of the Old Testament, we have the completion of God's inspired God-breathed library, and he proved it by what these apostles did. If you can't be confident in the apostles' work, then, I I mean, you know, reading 28 chapters of what they did here, I I don't know, it's not going to help us. And if I'm going to start talking about stepping out of your comfort zone to do things to complete the royal task in our generation, I don't think you'd be motivated, motivated to do it. If you can't, in your own mind, at two in the morning, wake up and say, I know that those words on that page are authoritative. And again, that's a confidence the world doesn't want you to have. The only thing the moderns want you to be certain of is uncertainty. But these things were written so that you might be certain. Certain not only that God wants to continue his work among us, and certain not only that we have a sure word that commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles and then passed on to us. But the very one this is all about, verse 3, Acts chapter 1, verse 3, is we've got a Christ we're proclaiming. And the whole focus of the New Testament is Christ. He presented himself alive to them, to the apostles. After his sufferings, by many proofs. He couldn't have proved it. I mean, he's eating food with them. He proved it. Appearing to them, not just on one afternoon for four hours, but for 40 days. And he was speaking about the thing. The whole book of Acts is going to get us to get excited about. And that is the advancement of the kingdom of God. God's leadership and governance and reign over people's lives. One day culminating in a real, tangible place called the kingdom of God. The reality is, we're talking about a Christ that proved it by rising from the dead. Romans chapter one says he was declared with power to be the son of God by the resurrection. He rose and that was the primary thing that everyone said, you want to talk about credentials. It's not just I heard it. He did some miracles in Galilee. He did some really cool things in in Judea. I heard some stuff he did in Nazareth that seemed like supernatural. It's that you had something that no one could really contend with. And that is someone we saw executed. And now he's been appearing over and over and over again to all these people. Passage after passage of all the times Jesus tries to make it clear. You saw me killed and now I'm alive. And though Christ is not just trying to prove that there's life after death and some conscious experience in some spiritually disembodied state, but he's physically alive in a body with fingernails and toenails and eyelashes and earlobes in the same state that you're going to be in one day perfected with a resurrected body that you have a hope that you share with your neighbor who's one day going to end up in the morgue, that you say to him, I have hope for you, that though you die, yet shall you live. Why? Because you're trusting in the resurrection and the life. We have a message that's going to transform people's future. It's going to transform eternity for them. But you better be absolutely certain of Christ's credentials. Number three, jot that down. Be certain of Christ's credentials. He rose from the dead. Did he do other things that prove his credentials? Sure he did. He could speak to a stormy sea on Galilee and say, be still, and it would stop moving. But you know what? The thing that I think has converted more skeptics than anything else is looking, as I said to you, in Luke 24, as we studied the resurrection of Christ, it is his resurrection. Whether it's Simon Greenleaf going out to try and disprove Christianity or Josh McDowell or whoever it might be. Lee Strobel, all these attorney types who say, I got to disprove Christianity. They go and they research it and they say, that's the one thing that is absolutely, I just cannot get over the fact that there's no other way to explain this empty tomb and all these things that happened in and around it and after it, except by the fact that he rose from the dead. And if he rose from the dead and that risen one says to you, hey, I want you to be my witness 
I want you to continue, even to the end of the age, making disciples, then you can't sit here on your butt on Sunday hearing stuff from the Bible and go, I don't know, maybe. No. We have a royal task. It is your responsibility and my responsibility to get outside the doors of this church and to fill this church up so, so, so much. We're sitting people in the lobbies and saying, when are we going to plant the next church? Because I need to find a parking spot in this church. We need to plant more churches. We need to train more leaders. We need to see this place explode numerically, which is exactly what happened in the book of Acts. Why? So you can sit back with your cigar, smoke in your office and go, hey, it's cool. I don't smoke cigars. I, it's not for me to get an easier life. This is not for me to go around doing this or anybody on this staff, you understand. Matter of fact, more people, more problems. I guarantee you. I really guarantee you. But I'll tell you this. This is what it's all about. Paul said, I'll most gladly spend and be expended for your souls. If I want a comfortable church experience as some parson in some country church, I go move somewhere, hopefully where no one's allowed to move to, and I get my, my 115 people, and I would sit there and preach through Romans every year. I mean, I don't know. That, there, there you go. That's what I would do. But I don't want to be in a church that doesn't have a lot of people around them that need to get saved. As 2 Timothy chapter 2 says, I want to do all things for the sake of the elect that they might be saved. There are people out there that God has chosen, as we'll see in the book of Acts, to eternal life. He's called them eternal life. I need to find out who they are. And I'm not going to do that by looking at a crystal ball. I'm going to do that by sharing the gospel with them. I don't think I'm ever going to be gutsy enough to step outside the comfort of just being an anonymous underground Christian until I'm assured of his ongoing work. That he wants to work in Compass Bible Church in the 21st century. That his word that we're quoting to people, that we're memorizing, that we're meditating on, that we're preaching, are the authoritative words through the apostles. Christ apostles, you better have some confidence in them. And you better be certain that we're proclaiming the King of kings and Lord of lords. And that's exactly what they did. They preached about it. Acts 2.32, Jesus was raised up as we are all witnesses. Chapter 4, verse 33. And with great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. I mean, it goes throughout the book. It's too many references to quote. But I can tell you, they started to pay dearly for it. First of all, with mocking, which you're going to get as well. If you really believe that a resurrected Christ with fingernails is somewhere right now and that that Christ has commanded you to do things that are going to, it's going to start getting you the pushback. And, And here was Paul. And he says, when they had heard of the resurrection of the dead, they all mocked. Yeah, we're going to get that. Paul cried out before the Sanhedrin. They didn't like this. And he said, listen, it is with respect to the hope of the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial. I'm in prison because of this. He stands up before King Agrippa, the great grandson of King Herod who killed all those babies in Jerusalem. And he said, I stand here testifying to both small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass that the Christ would suffer and be the first to rise from the dead. And proclaim light, the salvation and the gospel. Light both to our people and to the Gentiles. And as he was saying all this, Festus said with a loud voice, right? He just talked about the resurrection. He said, you are out of your mind. Your great learning has driven you mad. And Paul responds, I love this. Can't wait to preach on this if we ever get there. In verse 25 of chapter 26. He says, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus. I'm speaking true and rational words. I'm persuaded that none of these things has escaped the king's notice. I love this. He says, the king knows about these things and I can speak to him boldly. Why? Because he was certain about it. I can speak confidently about it. He says, this stuff hasn't been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you believe. It was called in the Old Testament prophecies. I love this. And I can't wait to preach on this. It'll be a crazy thing to figure out. What did Agrippa mean when he responded to Paul and said, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? I mean, I don't know. There's many ways to understand that. Right? At least two. Like what are I mean, are you are you feeling conviction? Are you are you mocking him? The point is that Paul was willing to go to prison to preach the risen Christ. The reason for our boldness should be because you know that the king has assigned you a task to step out of your comfort zone and to share the gospel. And he's coming again. The Bible's made that clear. As confident as we should have been in the first coming of Christ, you can sit here between the comings of Christ and say, I'm confident he is going to return. Just before my break, it was providential because I do get a chance on my break to read some books I wouldn't normally read. And someone in the, I think it was the 11 o'clock service on the last day I preached before I left for a couple weeks, 
came up to me with a book in hand and handed me a book and said, would you read this? Would you review this? Said someone in my family, I forget who it was, a, a grandson or a niece or nephew, they've read this and it's really rocked their, their faith. And I said, of course, yeah. And um, I knew the author and I knew the trajectory of the author. I mean, he studied Old Testament languages and Old Testament archaeology. And I mean, he became a contributor to Bible encyclopedias and dictionaries and written a commentary even on the Pentateuch. And I mean, I, I knew him back in those days as, a, as a, you know, a scholar who understood a lot about the history and the context of the Old Testament. But now he's writing these books. And the book that he handed me was one, of course, it's going to rock people's faith, but it's so in line with everything that our culture is saying. And if you want to have some kind of Christianity that's going to fit the culture, you need that kind of Christianity. And it starts with the very thing that I was planning on preaching about this morning, and that is that we cannot get to the royal task and take it seriously unless we are certain about these things. And that's how it started. When Luke wrote, he said, I want you to be certain. The title of the book that this former Old Testament scholar wrote, he's calling out people for being in sin. And here's the sin. Maybe you know this book. It's called The Sin of Certainty. Can't be certain. It's got an equally dumb subtitle. It's like we have to just give up on being so sure about everything. Now, I know he's a smart guy. I know he knows Aramaic and Hebrew better than I do. I get that. But this smart guy reveals way too much in the beginning of this book. Showing basically the very basic thing I struggle against all the time in people's minds. And that is, I have in the Bible a God that frankly is an uncomfortable God to deal with. And that God, if I were going to make up a God, I wouldn't make up that God. That God's kind of tough for me as a sinner looking at that God. I struggle with that. And he starts to talk about the problem of hell. And he says, that really just is just messed me up. And he talks about him being, of all things, exposed to a Disney movie on a flight, seeing the portrayal of Christians as being these, you know, these fire and brimstone kind of Christians and someone else comes up and offers a, a, an alternative, a nicer, gentler God. I mean, that's the gist of it. I mean, it's a more modern Disney movie than Pollyanna, but it has that same, that idea, right? You got the fire breathing, heaven or hell, that's all you got and, and make a decision here. And I want a God that doesn't, doesn't do that kind of thing. I want a God that's a lot cooler and more hip to us and more reasonable. And so I don't like that God. So he talks about how that was really a pivotal moment for him. It got him thinking. And basically, he says, and I'll, I'll quote it for you. He, he asks the reader, in the quiet of your own heart, he says, think about it. What kind of God do you believe in? I mean, what kind of God do you really believe in? And in that section, he's trying to prove, I mean, you really believe that God's going to do those kinds? Are people really going to go to hell? Come on. And then he says this later. He says, that depiction of God in that movie, he says, was my default God. I mean, that's who I believed in. But the other God, note this carefully, was the one I deep down really wanted to believe in. Well, that's nice. That's great. I mean, uh, your boss at work, you may want to believe is a different guy than he is, but he is who he is. And so it is that he starts this journey of saying, well, can't I, and it sounds a lot like Psalm 50, which I'm sure he can parse better than I can. Psalm 50 talks about the reality of us wanting God to be just like us. And so I want a God that's a little different. So he starts down this path and basically says, if I can undermine, and he tries to in very scholarly books and other books that he's written that I've read, talk about the fact, but well, you know, there's reasons for us really not to believe the Bible the way it is. And so I just, let's stop and stop being dogmatic and let's just, let's change our thoughts about all this. And the irony and the contradiction of even the book is he starts to talk about how uncomfortable he was with God, the God of the Bible, that he wanted a different God that wasn't quite so harsh. But later he goes on to say, the reason you Christians keep holding your Bibles is because you're comfortable with that and you're comfortable with that God. And I'm thinking, which is it, buddy? Really, seriously. And I'm thinking, I'm not comfortable with the God that I read about in the Bible. And you shouldn't be either. You shouldn't be. You shouldn't even be that comfortable with God if you're Michael the archangel. Why? Because they shield their face around this God. He is a consuming fire. The godly fear this God. We're uncomfortable. If, if fear means nothing else, it means this. I'm uncomfortable with this God. This God is perfectly holy, perfectly just. He has perfect and complete sovereign authority. If I do worship him, I worship him in reverence and awe. Well, in all that, the whole premise of the book, which is the premise of a movement, and there's plenty of Christians to hop on this train, 
You just can't be confident. Matter of fact, if you Christians would stop going to church and having the centerpiece of your service be some guy getting up preaching from the Bible, that would be good. Just chill out and relax. Now, this is nothing new. The emergent church movement you might remember from, I don't know, a couple decades ago. I mean, I remember Doug Pageant's book on preaching reimagined, trying to get us to say we should have, no one should be standing up in a service and pontificating about what the Bible says. We should all just sit back and kind of learn from each other, right? Like some kind of, you know, I don't know, therapy session where we all sit around and just talk about what are your thoughts and what do you think and what does this passage mean to you? I don't care what the passage means to you. I really don't care what the passage means to you. The passage means what the passage means, and we need someone to work hard in studying it so they can help us understand what the passage means because the passage means whatever it means about the God who is whoever he is. Does that make sense? That's the reality. And so I've got to sit back and think, what am I going to do with the God that is? And as he develops the premise of the book, it's like, I just need to be less certain. Now, that's all great, except for the fact that I keep flipping through pages where he seems very certain about other things. Matter of fact, one example of many in the book, geologists have known that the Bible is wrong because the earth is several billion years old, 4.5 billion to be exact. I love that. (laughs) I'm supposed to be certain about that. Why? Because geologists told me that. Well, tell me what the apostles said who were raising people from the dead. Talk about a geologist who, by the way, won't have that same opinion by the time he retires. Matter of fact, from the time of the printing of this book until today, at least out there on the websites I saw, the scientific websites, we've even adjusted that just a tiny bit. Trust me, mark it, put a pin in everything about the expanse of the universe, the size of the universe, how it all started, how old it is. You look at all of that. I don't care about radiometric dating or parent isotopes. You you say all you want about that. You put a pin in it, and if Christ doesn't come back for 200 years, you see if the things in the textbooks then say the same things they say now. I guarantee you. You want me to be certain about the moving targets of the culture's even scientific theories, and you want to be certain about you pontificating about the fact that I can't be certain but you certainly don't want to be certain about what Christ said. Stop it. Listen. Modernity wants you to be certain about nothing except what they tell you to be certain about, which is you can't be certain about God. You can't be certain about the gospel. You can't be certain about Christ. Luke wrote these two volumes so that you might be certain. So be certain that what we're doing in the next week, what we're doing in the next month, Lord willing, what we'll be doing in the next year, the next two years, is the ongoing work that Christ promised to continue. That the apostles that we quote were his authorized spokespersons. And that the Christ that we anticipate returning was physically raised from the dead. Expect it. Know it. Be sure of it. Let's pray. God, help us in our day to be much more sure. Not because we're just grasping in the dark for things that we don't understand. But because, as the Apostle Paul said before the greatest authority there in his day, Herod, in that region at least, he said these words are rational and true. Help us to understand that, even as we take advantage of things in this church, discipleship programs, Bible studies, Bible reading, our Thursday night apologetic class that's coming up. God, let us be much more confident about these things, that we might be willing to step out from our comfort zone to start conversations about Christ, that we might see more people brought to repentance and faith, that we might get on with what's coming, what Jesus taught about over and over again, and that is the coming kingdom. Let us pray for it. Let us work for it. Let us hasten the day of the Lord by being faithful representatives of Christ in this world as we are certain about our calling, about our mission, about the word of God. In Jesus' name, amen.